0: Great to see you all again. If you've got any first time visitors, I don't want to be out. So you all know who I am. I don't need to introduce myself, that's cool. Um, I don't know whether you want to very quickly, if you're following along, um, to open your Bibles to Galatians chapter 5. One of my favourite passages. Um, as you're looking for that, what we've been doing is we started, didn't we, last week, taking a look at one, another one of the spiritual practices of Jesus. We started looking at the practice of fasting. Um, so we talked about fasting and just how it was it's so central, such an integral thing into in Jesus' life, in the life of the disciples, and indeed throughout the church history, has <laughs> been... Um, you know, fasting and prayer going on. I, I just got to change my ear program because I sound weird to myself. Um, certainly up until the 18th uh, century, so fairly recent in church history, the church fasted religiously, <laughs> so to speak, uh, for at least, well, two days a week. You know, they were fasting two days a week. The church fasted uh, on s- s- specific events, specific uh, dates in the cal- uh, ch- Christian calendar, so uh, throughout Lent, for example, there was fasting going on for 40 days in the lead-up to Easter, through Holy Saturday. Before baptisms, the people you know, would fast. So fasting was just like something which was regularly done. Uh, it was central to the life of the church, to uh, say, Jesus' life, the disciples, and throughout the church. Uh, history, but it's not—it's not the case today, is it? Isn't that weird? It's like it's—it's a—it's uh, a—it's pra- a lost practice. Something we don't really do much uh, the, these days. And I believe that the Lord would have us recapture that uh, and, and address that and recapture that. I talked last week about what fasting isn't. <laughs> I talked about what fasting is. Essentially. Uh, fasting is not eating food, in order that we feed on the Holy Spirit. It reminds of us of our utter need for God. We are in utter need of Him, that we may so- source our, our nourishment, our sustenance from the Holy Spirit who dwells within. And so that's what I believe God wants us to recapture. I love that, uh, that quote that I brought last, last week from Dallas Willard. Fasting is feasting, but not on food, but on the Lord and doing his will. What a fantastic um, quote. So that's what we've been talking about. We've talking about what fasting actually is. And what we're going to do this week is we can talk a little bit more about why well, why do this then? Why would we engage in this practice of fasting? Now, essentially, there are three overarching categories for why we might uh, fast. And that's what we want to look at today. To starve the flesh and to feed the spirit. I'll talk a bit more about that. To pray. It aids us in our prayer life. And to stand in solidarity with the poor. Now, I'm not going to have time to talk about number three we're going to come back to that. We're going to talk about God's heart for the poor. And we'll introduce um, how fasting plays a part in that later in the year. So this morning, I'm just going to concentrate on those first two items. So so to starve the flesh, feed the spirit, and to pray. So praying with our body. I'll come come back to that. But let's come come to that Galatians passage. Uh, I'm sure if you're following, you should be there now. But Galatians 5. It's starting from chapter uh, verse 13. It says, You, my brothers and sisters, were called to be free, but do not use your freedom to indulge the flesh. Rather, serve one another humbly in love. And then down in verse 16. So I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of your flesh, for the flesh desires what is contrary to To the spirit, and the spirit is contrary to the flesh. They are in conflict with each other, so that you are not to do whatever you want. But if you are led by the spirit, you are not under the law. The acts of the flesh are obvious sexual immorality, impurity and debauchery, idolatry, witchcraft, hatred, discord, jealousy, fits of rage, selfish ambition, dissensions and factions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and the like. So it goes on and on and on. I warn you, as I did before, that those who live like this will not inherit the kingdom of God. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, forbearance or patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Against such things there is no law. Those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. Since we live by the Spirit, let us keep in step with the Spirit. There is this consistent theme that runs through a load of Paul's teaching. In fact, it runs through the the whole of the New Testament. And this idea is that there's these two components within each, each of us. There's the flesh And the spirit, the flesh and the spirit. And the Greek word that is used here for the flesh is this word, socks. There's different ways you can interpret or translate the word socks. One is it's our body, our physical self, okay? It's uh, flesh and blood. But that's not the way Paul was using it in this passage, because Paul was trans, the other way it can be translated, and the way that Paul is referring to it here, it's, talk, it's talking about our fallen human nature, that core sensual animal-like desires within each of so, us, you know, and it's all messed up and it's out of whack. It's it's all distorted. The desires for food and drink and sex and sleep and self-preservation—all and those things of themselves—they're not bad, right? They're not bad things, but they have become kind of out of line. As I say, they've been distorted. They're infected by this thing called sin. And in turn, that takes control of our entire body, our mind, everything, the whole person. Our flesh is often characterized in the Bible as a power which is in opposition to God. It's everything that God doesn't want. Okay, It's that part within you and me that is it's all about self-gratification. I want what I want. And I want it now, and there's nothing you can do to stop that. That's kind of what our flesh is. It's that, don't you tell me what to do. I am in full control. I'm free to do what I want and when I want to do it. So Our flesh is like this power, and it's infected our body, our mind, and it convinces our mind of what freedom is versus what slavery is. It lies to us and tells us what, what is freedom and what's freedom all about. It lies to us and tells us what's good and what's evil, what's right and what's wrong. And the problem is we start to believe those lies, and that affects the way that we outlive life. Now, thankfully, your flesh does not sum up the entirety of who you are. There is this other part which Paul refers to, is the spirit in the Greek, it's pneuma. And this part of you, uh, you, me, this part of us is where we connect with God. It's where we're in communion with his spirit. On other occasions, Paul refers to that as our inner man or innermost man. It's the deepest part of who we are. It's, it's our, our spirit. It's our inner being. This is where we feel or sense our deepest desires. Not all, always our strongest de- desires, by the way. Sometimes we have very strong desires uh, in a very given moment, and they're not nece- they're not of God. I mean, they're sometimes influenced by our flesh. They may be the wrong things. They're driven by our flesh. Could be lust or lying, anger, gossip, all these things. But they aren't our deepest desires because below all of those things, beneath all that is our spirit, our inner man or inner being, then which is in communion with God. It's in our spirit. If you are in Christ where we have our deepest desires, and those desires are aligned with God's spirit and God's will and what he would have for us. And so with each one of us then, at present, there's this kind of mixed bag of stuff going on of desires, desires of the flesh on the one side and desires of the spirit. And they're in conflict with one, one, uh, each other, is what Paul was saying. And so for Paul, freedom isn't about simply, I can do what I want, what I want. That's not freedom. He said in verse 13 there, you, my brothers and sisters, we're called to be free, but don't let your, use your freedom to indulge your flesh, the flesh. You see, Paul, for Paul, and indeed for Jesus, and in the entire body, to act upon the desires of our flesh is not actually freedom at all. See, the, the individual that actually says, yeah, oh, don't put your rules on me, I can do what I want, I'm in, I'm in control, I'm, I can free to do what I want, which is quite a prevailing view of our individualistic sort of world and society that we live in, right? To, for that person, that is not freedom. That is actually slavery. It's slavery to our flesh. This messed up, destructive desires that residing in every single one of us that Jesus came to save us from. <coughs> Real freedom, however, is the ability to live according to the spirit. It's to have our spirit brought alive and transformed by the Holy Spirit and for him to impart in each one of us a power and authority which is required to master our own body and our own mind. And having mastered our own body and our own mind, it's then to will or to desire what the Spirit wants in our life, what God wants to do in and through our lives. This is what true freedom is. Now, the language that the Bible uses in that, what Jesus uses is in that is, take up your cross and follow me. <laughs> what, what was reading there, crucify the flesh. It's to overcome, to starve, or to put to death our flesh in order to feed our spirit. And so how do we do that? That's going to be the question we come to. How do we do that? The short answer is through the spiritual practices. It's through these lifestyle practices of Jesus that we crucify our flesh. And simultaneously, we feed our spirit. It's by opening up our mind and our body, every part of our being to God to be transformed by his spirit. And by opening up everything, impart, you know, fasting is a key part to that, by the way. Fasting, the practice, it just helps us do that. Fasting is one of the spiritual practices which is perfectly set up for us to nail our flesh uh, against the cross. St. Augustine, 4th century bishop, you get a quote of his up. He was asked, you know, why, why would you fast? He said this, because it's sometimes necessary to check the delight of the flesh in respect to the licit in order to keep it from yielding to illicit joys. In other words, sometimes we have to serve a blow to our flesh in areas that aren't so bad, like pleasures, like food, so that we can keep yourself from giving into areas of sin, you know, forbidden acts. It's in this area of mastering our flesh, our body in relation to food, which kind of weakens our desires to things like lust and greed and laziness and ego and all those sorts of things. That muscle is kind of weakened uh, as, as we do that. And we start to desire in our spirit more of the things that the Holy Spirit wants to do, and that muscle becomes stronger. So you're kind of weakening our flesh while strengthening our spirit. Fasting is probably the best practice to help us deal with powerful, or the power of sin or sinful desires in our lives, particularly in the areas that I just mentioned, sexual immorality and gluttony and laziness and all those sorts of things. Sin, relate, sin which is related to a kind of bodily appetite. The appetite of our, our, our flesh. Now I'm not saying that fasting is the ultimate cure to sin. There's only one ultimate cure to sin. His name is Jesus. Thank you. He's the only ultimate cure to sin. So there the isn't kind of power in the practice. There's not power in uh, Fasting—it's in Jesus, but for us as Christians, it's an access point to the power. Now, you take Jesus out of the equation, take the Holy Spirit out of the equation—you know there are many non-Christians that fast, non-Christian, non-believers you know, that have no faith, people have different faith—they fast, and you know fasting is just that. You, know, you take Jesus and the Holy Spirit out of the equation—it's just a practice of fasting. At best, it kind of helps us work and strengthen our will, which is not altogether a bad thing, but it's not the answer. Um, but that's all it is. But for us Christians, as I say, it's, it's more than that. Fasting for Christians is you know, this practice by which we starve our flesh and we access this power which is beyond ourselves, this power of the Holy Spirit. and we feed, It feeds our spirit and gives us strength to overcome our flesh. So that's that first part. Overcoming the flesh, feeding the spirit, starving the flesh, uh, feeding the spirit. Secondly, it's to aid us in relation to praying. It helps us to pray. Acts chapter 13, verse 1, it says this. Now, in the church at Antioch, there were prophets and teachers, Barnabas, Simeon, Simeon called Niger and then a bunch of other people I can't pronounce and Saul and while they were worshipping the Lord and fasting there it is the Holy Spirit said set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work which I have called them so after they had fasted and prayed they placed their hands on them and sent them off now I guess this is quite common to many of us here that phrase you know fasting and prayer you know, you probably come across that phrase, haven't you? Yeah, we do prayer and fasting, or fasting and prayer, or whatever. Those two things are often paired together throughout the Bible. They're like brother and, and sister. We often see them together. The thing is, can we fast and not pray? Yes, yeah, yeah, we can. It's not a trick question. And can we pray and not fast? Yeah, absolutely, we can do these things independent of, of each of them. But you know what? When they come together, they do something. They fuel. They seem to fuel one another, and they, they, some, something else happens in that. In fact, fasting has been described as praying with your body. I said that, that earlier. A quote of Scott McKnight, a professor, NT, uh, New Testament um, scholar, In his book entitled Fasting the Ancient Practices, he described fasting as body talk. (laughs) I'm sure there was a song from the 80s that had that phrase in There was, wasn't there? How embarrassing. No, (laughs) I knew that. Body talk. He was saying it's like similar to lifting our hands in worship, like, Many of us were doing this morning. It's kind of you can communicating something to God with our bodies, with our posture, in the, in the way we stand, the way that we lift our hands. It's very symbolic. And it's similar with fasting. It's a sim- symbolic thing. We're kind of praying with our bodies. We're praying with our whole being. There's no better way in my mind to vividly vividly express our deepest desires, our deepest hunger for God or to God than to fast and experience literal hunger in our bodies. Now, what we have to be careful of is that fasting is not akin to putting God's arm up his back. It's not going on a hunger strike and saying, God, you've got, you've got to come and answer. You've got to change things according to my sometimes... Uh, Petty whims or petty desires—that's not what it is. <coughs> it's about expressing our deepest hunger, our deepest longing, and our pursuing of God. And it just seems that sometimes God responds to that kind of prayer more than others. Can I say more than that? Flippant—I'm just going to toss this prayer up in the air and see where it lands. I'm not saying God doesn't answer that, and sometimes He does. In his grace answers that as well. But it just seems God He wants to see that longing. Now let me show you what I mean in scriptures. Jeremiah twenty-nine. And this is part of the story where Israel are living in captivity and they've been crying out to God to be libera- you know, liberated. God, God, set us free. And God speaks, speaks through the prophet Jeremiah and He says a whole bunch of things to him. Then in verse 12, he says this He says, Then you will call on me. And come and pray to me, and I will listen to you. You will seek me and find me. Uh, When, God, can you be a little bit more specific? You will seek me and find me when you seek me with all your heart. There is something, I think, in this thing called seeking God with all our heart that God honors and he desires. And and, and what I'm not saying is that God is somehow aloof or is, you know, ultra busy running the universe or he's disinterested in our needs or anything like that. I just think it's because God is deeply relational. yeah, just like any earthly father and how he relates to his sons, daughters, kids or whatever. and, And so wants to be desired and wanted by them. I think God wants to be desired by us. And it's that kind of relational connection that we have um, with him. I don't know whether anybody's heard of Arthur Wallace. Some of you may have done. He uh, was from down in, in Devon uh, way. In the late 1960s, he wrote the book God's Chosen Fest. Uh He writes about the, how effective prayer and its relationship to, to fasting. He said this, How often we have made earnest prayer to God for some specific need and the assurance that this was in the will of God, and yet there's been no answer from heaven. Can you relate to that, anybody? Why, he asked the question. It could well be, and often is, that God is saying to us, when you seek me with all your heart, I will be found by you, quoting Jeremiah. Jeremiah. When a person is willing to set aside the legitimate appetites of the body to concentrate on the work of praying he is demonstrating that he means business that he is seeking with all his heart and will not let go let God go unless he answers <laughs> so fasting is this powerful expressive way uh, we can express to god god i am hungry for you i'm hungry for you to move in my life it's kind of praying not with just our mouth not with our mind but it's praying with our entire body now when we talk about how fasting aids at prayer that prayer in itself can be broken up into so many sort of categories um or subcategories, facets of prayer. I'm going to just talk about five facets of prayer. Fasting really works well to aid us in. Firstly, it helps us to repent. Example of fasting to repent, uh, 1 Samuel chapter 7, starting from the second half of uh, verse 2. Then all the people of Israel turned back to the Lord. By the way, that, uh, uh, if you want to get an understanding of what repentance means, that word repent, that's it right there. So they turned back. There's this turning, going in one direction. Stop, reevaluate, rethink, turn your, you know, turn around do 180 degrees and turn back. So all the people of Israel, they turned back to the Lord. So Samuel said to all the Israelites, if you are returning to the Lord with all your hearts, it's a familiar phrase now, Uh, then rid yourself of the foreign gods and the Ashtoreths, I think that's pronounced, and commit yourself to the Lord and serve him only. And he will deliver you out of the hand of the Philistines. So the Israelites, they put away their Baals, their Ashtoreths, and served the Lord only. Then Samuel said, assemble all Israel and Mizpah, and I will intercede with the Lord for you. When they had assembled at Mizpah, they drew water and poured it out before the Lord. On that day, here it is, they fasted and they confessed. We have sinned against the Lord. Another quick example, Leviticus 23. This is the Lord laying out the requirements for the Day of Atonement. Now, Verse 26. The Lord said to Moses, the tenth day of the seventh month is the day of atonement. Hold a sacred assembly and deny yourselves and present a food offering to the Lord. So give your food to God. Do not do any work on that day because it is the day of atonement. When atonement is made for you, about, you not know, being covered by uh, our sins, covered uh, by God. When atonement is made for you before the Lord, your God, sorry, those who, are, who do not deny themselves on that day must be cut off from, all the, from their people. I would destroy from among them their people anyone who does any work on that day. Who says a bit? Um, you shall do not work, no worker at all. This is to be a lasting ordinance for all generations to come, so it wasn't just for them, uh, wherever you live. It is a day of Sabbath rest for you, and you must deny yourselves from the evening of the ninth day to the mo- uh, of the month until the following evening you are to observe your Sabbath. Now, three times in that passage, uh, and, this, and we see it in other writings of the Hebrew Scriptures as well, was that phrase, deny yourself. Uh, this, well, I highlighted that, but uh, deny yourself. It can be sh- uh, also translated, inflict yourself. It's another form of expression for fasting. Okay, that's, that's what uh, Moses is talking about here. It's he's, he's he's talk- all about fasting. Uh, and, and even to this day, actually, you know, the practicing Jews, orthodox Jews, they actually will fast for 24 hours uh, on the Day of Atonement, Yom Kippur, they call, they call it. Um, and, and during that time, they're praying, they're repenting of their sins that they've committed for that previous year. So there's this connection there. Fasting can also very much be a part of repentance. It enables us to repent well. It's a way of expressing our deepest and most sincere sorrow, our apology to God over our sin. Scott McKnight, he writes, and this is directly related to that passage we just read out there, Scott McKnight says um, the Israelites were told to make their life uncomfortable for an entire day in order to bring their entire person into harmony with the gravity of sin and the need to turn from sin towards God. That's that repentance again, that turning uh, thing. At At the very core of fasting is, get this, empathy with the divine or participation in God's perception of a sacred moment. When someone dies, God is grieved. When someone sins, particularly, we don't use this word now, (laughs) particularly bad, okay? It's a particularly bad way. God is grieved. When a nation is threatened, God is grieved. The point is this. Fasting empowers us to empathize with God. It's like, in this regard, fasting is designed to not make you feel good. (laughs) Now, that may make some people squirm a little bit. and I'm a bit uncomfortable with that thought, especially if you have a theology that thinks, God is all about my comfort. God is all about me feeling good and feeling squidgy. That's challenging. It challenges that. Fasting is about tuning our emotions into the pain of God, surrounding a particular event or a circumstance or sin in our life or within the world. It's kind of like getting connected to that. So that's the first thing. Second area of prayer, fasting aids, it helps us to grieve. 1 Samuel 31, verse 12, second half of verse 12. This is, this is Israel, Israel's king, Saul, and his three sons. They've just been killed in battle against the Philistines. Okay, It says, they took down the, the bodies of Saul and his sons from the wall in beth And they went to Jabesh, where they burned them. And then they took their bones and they buried them under the tariff tree at Jabesh. And here it is. They fasted for seven days. Fasting, it seems, it's it's a way of expressing and processing our grief. Uh, It's really, really common within the ancient world. If you have a look at Nehemiah uh, passage now, chapter 1 from verse 2, or halfway through verse 2. It says, One of my brothers came from Judah um, with some other men, and I questioned them about the Jewish remnant that had survived the exile and also about Jerusalem. They said to me, Those who survived the exile and are back in the province are in great trouble still, they're in disgrace. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down and its gates have been burned with fire. When I heard these things, I sat down and wept. For some days I mourned and fasted and prayed before the God of heaven. Fasting, it seems, is this key way of processing grief with God. And God sometimes, I think, you know, I, I just think sometimes we're not really taught how to grieve well in society. I think sometimes we, you know, you're told, you know, you've lost somebody that's close to you and it's like, hey, you know, you just got to remember and yeah, celebrate and, you know, yeah, look back, be grateful, chin up. You know? <laughs> look on the bright side. And, yeah, I think there are there's some truth in that. I think there's some reality in that and there's some good things in that. But you know what? That's not always the way that Jesus approached the grievous moments of life. Sometimes Jesus just literally sobbed. And so, you know, in front of people, right there in front of people, when his buddy Lazarus died, you know, he just sobbed. And so I think, you know, grieving and lamenting before God is a good and it's a right thing. And it's part of being emotionally healthy. I think he's learning to grieve well. Otherwise, how do we express it? Sometimes our grief, when it's suppressed, it just kind of seeps out in other emotions like anger. It comes out in anger in some way. Or, you know, maybe we try and deal with it in another way by go, turning to drink or turning to food or, you know, drugs or sex or the Internet or, or whatever it is. But imagine our life. Imagine what life could be for us, for many of us, if we'd learn to process grief with God through Prayer and fasting. (laughs) Thirdly, fasting helps us to cry out to God in a crisis. Anybody experience the crisis? Yeah. (laughs) Second Chronicles chapter 20 from verse 1 says this. After this, the Moabites and the Ammonites, with some of the Meunites, I think that's how you pronounce these things, came to wage war against Jehoshaphat. Some people came and told Jehoshaphat, a vast army is coming against you from Edom, from the other side of the Dead Sea. It's already at this other place. <laughs> Alam, Alam, Jehoshaphat, resolved to inquire of the Lord, and he, he proclaimed, there it is, a fast. all of Judah (laughs) it's like "Ah, this is this huge army it's coming, it's going to take us out Israel doesn't stand a chance we're going to be wiped off the map here and what does Jehoshaphat do he declares hey guys stop eating (laughs) (laughs) verse 4 the people of Judah came together to seek help from the Lord indeed they came from every town in Judah to seek him and then if you carry on reading that passage, Jehoshaphat, he goes into this incredible prayer. It's a, a wonderful prayer. And the last line is this. We do not know what to do, but our eyes are on you. <laughs> Have you ever been at that place? God, I haven't got a clue what to do in this. I'm at the end of myself. We don't know what to do, but our eyes are firm, fixed firmly on you. We don't have a chance to go into it, but there's the story of Esther. And it's Again, it's another genocide story. You know, uh, The entire na- uh, nation of Israel are going to be wiped out again this time in Persia. And Esther sends out a message to everyone to fast. And he says, like, she's like, don't eat. No food and no drink for like three days. I'm going to go and speak to the king, which is against the law. And I could die. I could perish with this. If I perish, I perish, is the words that she used. And so, again, it's this calling to fast in a time of crisis. Number four, fasting also uh, helps us to change God's mind in a situation. That sounds a bit contentious, a bit controversial, doesn't it? (laughs) We can't change the mind of God, the God of the universe. We can't change his mind, can we? some Christians, some people who follow Jesus will tell you, no, of course we can't. He's God. God's God. You know, you can't change his mind. <clears throat> the way we view this, the way, the way I view this is, as I said before, we believe that God is a relational God. He's a God of relationship. He's a God that loves us. us. He's invited us into relationship. He's called us. He's adopted us and made us his family, His sons and daughters and uh, this, so, this connection with God then is a relationship. And so, what kind of relationship do you know where one person is always has their way and has no interest, is totally dis, disinterested in listening to or, the respo- or responding to the heart's desires of the other member in this relationship? Is that the kind of loving relationship that you believe God has called us into? Yeah, I know it's not, it's not as simple as that. It's very, very complex, uh, all of this. But listen, this whole idea that we can change God's mind is played out in numerous ways in the Bible. I've got a couple of examples. Jonah 3. Now, we know the story of Jonah, right? Jonah has been sent by God to the city of Nineveh. He's been sent with, let's say, a not-so-positive message, <laughs> Nineveh has been uh, evil, and God is going to bring his judgment on them. He's going to destroy them. Naturally, uh, Jonah is like, I don't want to take this message to them. So he runs in the opposite direction. Now, we know the story. You know, he's like on the boat. It's like storm. He goes overboard. He nearly drowns. He's rescued by this big fish that swallows him up for three days and then bombs him out um, on, on the shore. And so God comes back to that question again, a second time. And that's where we kind of come to in uh, chapter 3. It says, then the, Lord, uh, then the word of the Lord came to Jonah a second time. He says, we're back to this question again. Go to the great city of Nineveh and proclaim to it the message I give you. Jonah, this time, <laughs> obeyed the word of the Lord and went to Nineveh. Now, Nineveh was a very large city. It took three days to go through it. It's a big city. Jonah began by going a day's journey into the city, proclaiming 40 more days and Nineveh will be overthrown. <laughs> but look at this. Nineveh, Nineveh, or the Ninevites, believed God. And then check this out. A fast was proclaimed, by, uh, and all of them, from the greatest to the least, put on sackcloth. Then we go down to verse 10 in that. We see God's response. When God saw what they did and how they turned from their evil ways, he relented and did not bring on them the destruction that he had threatened. Now, the, the particularly interesting and fascinating phrase that we read in there is this thing when they turned from their evil ways. That, that turned from, it's a Hebrew word shuv, um, and it can also be translated to relent or to repent or to change your mind, to change your thinking. And then, what, and actually, a little bit more interesting, and more to the point of what we're trying to make here, is that phrase where it said, God relented. It's the word Naham, um, which, surprise, surprise, can also be translated, is often translated, to repent, or to change your mind, and to change your way. Now, uh, the fact is that king King james version that should come up it actually translates it that way, and God saw that their works all their fasting, the sackcloth, all that sort of stuff. God saw their works that they had turned from their evil ways, and God repented of the evil that He said that we would do unto them, and He did them not The new living translation translates it this way when God saw that they, what they had done and how they had put a stop to their evil ways, he changed his mind and did not carry out the destruction that he had threatened. So if we was to put that more literally, if we to read that out more literally, it would be when God saw that they had changed their minds, God changed his mind and didn't destroy them. When he saw we changed our mind. He changed his mind. And you know what? That pattern emerges again in other passages, in Joel 2, from verse 12. It says, even now, declares the Lord, return to me. There's that word again, shuv, turn, repent, change your mind. Um, Return to me with all your heart, with fasting and weeping and mourning. Rend your heart, not your garments. Return to the Lord, your God, for he is gracious and compassionate. He's slow to anger and abounding in love. Aren't you glad? About that, by the way. And, and then what does he do? He relents. It's that Necham word again. He changes his mind from sending calamity. Who knows? He may turn and relent and leave behind a blessing. Instead of judgment, instead of um, calamity and destruction, he may turn and, and leave behind a blessing, grain offering and drink offerings for the Lord, your God. Well wow. To think that maybe even us. Who knows, to use that phrase from the Bible, who knows if we were to change our mind, change, turn around, you know, change our direction, that God would change his mind also. But you know what, even if he doesn't, even if he doesn't, we can always trust the outcomes to God anyway, right? It, the point is, we're not It's not forbidden for us to request God to change a situation or indeed for God to change his mind on a situation. But at the end of the day, we can rest in the truth that God is a good God. He's slow to anger and he's good, he's kind, compassionate, all those things. He's a good God and he knows best and we can trust his way. We can trust all of the outcomes to him. And that's kind of a tension that we live in today. That sometimes, as followers of Jesus, sometimes we just have to grab a hold of God and we have to wrestle with him sometimes with fasting and prayer. We have to say, God, I'm not going to let go of you until I receive your blessing and to see an answer to this. I'm not going to let go of you. And then there are other times where we just have to trust that he knows. Last point then. Fasting helps us to know God's mind on a decision. Sometimes it's not a case of us needing to change God's mind. We just need to know his mind. (laughs) I I just want to know what you think about this or how we should go with this. (laughs) And sometimes it's about us taking time out to fast and pray and to tune our minds into what the Holy Spirit is saying in a given circumstance. Again, we come back now full circle back to a passage we read earlier, the Acts 13 passage from verse 2. said, while they were worshipping the Lord and fasting. So, right, well, they were right there. that took place before God. They're worshipping. Prayer and fasting is going on. The Holy Spirit said, set apart for me, Barnabas and Saul, for the work that I have called them to. And this was such a pivotal moment in the history of the church. <coughs> this is such a vital move. They really needed to get this right because, you know, the effects of this is going to affect the direction of the church for century. Well, uh, millennia to come, <laughs> it was because of this decision that the church changed from being a Jewish movement you know, that kind of gathered in Israel. It, it became a Jewish and a Gentile, Gentile movement that gathered right, right across the Mediterranean. Actually, it stretched out around the whole globe and it reached you and me. <laughs> so this is why we fast it's through the practice of fasting that we starve our flesh and we overcome our flesh and we feed our spirit. We fast because it aids our prayer. It fuels our prayer. And this is why we really want to encourage you to actually engage more in this practice of fasting. You know, if you've Fasted rarely. So, you know, the other last week I was saying, you know, stand up, you know, sit down if you fast, stand, remain standing if you if fast at least once a year, another did once a month, and then once a week, and so on. Some people actually fast once a year, some people fast once a month. I don't think there was anybody left that said, yeah, I'll fast once a week. Um, but I just want to encourage you to take a step. You know, I'm just going to like lay hold of this and recapture this in my own life. and I want to. Implement fasting more in my life. And now it's up to you. Now, what I want to also say is this is not legalism, okay? (laughs) This is not a legalist thing. If you're saying it's not for me right now, that's okay, okay? (laughs) It's an invitation uh, to participate. Uh, And there's great benefit to that as we've been uh, reading. But I just want you to prayerfully consider that. If you've never, ever fasted, I want you to prayerfully consider how yeah, I really get my teeth into this uh, pun very much intended there, by the way. I'm really going to lay a hold of this. I'm going to actually go ahead and start to fast. Uh, and so you know we were saying that we kind of like dial things down over the summer we don 't gather to meet, but we meet socially over various events maybe maybe this summer, over these like four or six weeks or whatever, maybe we we consider and think about all the spiritual practices that we 've been talking about fasting, um, prayer being one of or two of them um, silence and solitude, practicing the Sabbath. Living simply. All those things that we've been talking about, maybe this summer, that's what I'm going to actually do. I'm going to, this is going to be a catalyst moment. It's going to a turning point for me. And I'm actually going to engage in some of these ancient practices. And I'm going to lay hold of them again. Does that sound like a reasonable thing? Again, there's, just, there's no legalism, no... Mm-mm-mm-mm. It's not like God is going to like you a bit more if you engage in them, or we'll like you less if you don't. He loves us anyway. Why don't we stand?